We want to direct your attention then to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, we're going to begin our reading in the middle of the 36th verse, and then we'll read down through the 43rd verse of John chapter 12. We know again the setting. Um, we've been working here for some time in the Gospel of John. We know that the time is drawing near. In fact, in some places that I read, it, it gave this time as that we're going to read today as Tuesday of the of the week that Jesus went to the cross. And so we know the time is short. We know that the Lord has been walking with His followers for some two and a half years, or excuse me, three and a half years, and coming down to this point where he is going to be offered up on the cross for the sins of the world. We talked about his troubled heart and his troubled mind and soul as a human being, experiencing all the things that human being would experience in such a time as he was going to endure, coupled with the reality of his divinity where he knew all that he was going to endure at least knew what he was facing. And he had called out to people to believe in the light, to believe in him. And he had done many things to demonstrate to the world that he was the Son of God, the Messiah, the one who had been promised from the Old Testament for 4,000 years, had been told would be coming, and that he was him, he was the very Son of God, and that he was the light of the world, the bread of life, and all of these things that he referred to himself as. And he's now coming down to the end of his earthly life. And he's getting ready to pay the ultimate sacrifice on the cross so that you might be saved. So that a thousand years from now, you might be in heaven with him. A million years from now. And none of us know exactly when eternity will come to us. As we have already heard even today, none of us knows the day, the hour that we'll leave this life, but God does. And I want to talk to you today about unbelief. And we've looked at this topic before. And we wrestle with it again here in this text. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. He had, again, been speaking with the people and encouraging them to believe while he was yet with them. And as he said these things, he then departed, or so he left them, and he hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes 
from God. Jesus had, throughout his earthly ministry, performed one sign after another, demonstrating that he indeed was from God, that he indeed was unique among all others. From the opening pages, as as we recall now and look back even in the Gospel of John, in the early chapters of this Gospel, we remember the first miracle that Jesus performed. Then he turned the water into wine. We read the other Gospel accounts and the rest of John and just miracle after miracle and sign after sign, which is the word John uses each time referring to the miracle. Jesus had healed many people. He'd healed Peter's mother-in-law. He had healed the paralyzed man. He'd healed a man with a withered hand, an official's son, a deaf man, a blind man. And we remember him healing the ten lepers. He calmed the storm and he walked on water. He cast out devils and evil spirits. He fed 5,000 people on one day, one hill, one day on a hillside with nothing but two fish and five loaves of bread. Later, he fed 4,000 with only seven loaves of bread and a few small fish. If all of these things weren't enough, he raised the dead. He raised the widow's son. He raised Jairus' daughter. And of course, in the 11th chapter of John, as we've looked at recently, he raised Lazarus. His teaching was astonishing and remarkable to the people. They'd never heard anyone who spoke with such clarity and such power and such authority. His life was irreproachable. His sincerity was unquestionable. This was a man like no one had ever known before. This was a man who performed works that no one had ever seen before. Miracle and sign after miracle and sign. And it just struck me as I read it, and it must have struck the writer, the Apostle John, when he says, they still would not believe. They still would reject him. In the face of all of these things that Jesus did, the people still did not believe. And in the face of such claims, and I've mentioned this over the last few months a couple of times, I know, but in the face of such claims as the one that we just as the ones we just listed, of the healing of the of the lepers, of the giving the sight to the blind, which in the scripture itself it said no one had ever done that before, of the raising of the dead, of the feeding of the multitudes, of walking on water, and all of this the, the combing of the storms simply by speaking such claims. Surely, undoubtedly, if these claims were simply a lie and a deception, we would have all kinds of record of people saying that never happened. Jesus didn't do what he said he did, but we don't have such a record. And surely such claims as these would surely exist if Jesus was a charlatan. 
If he was a liar, if he was a deceiver, surely there would be person after person who said, we saw that they were tricking people and it just doesn't exist. We saw Jesus sin and it just doesn't exist. We saw Jesus not being who he said he was and these claims just don't exist. But what is undeniable and is irreproachable in history is that he lived and that Jesus of Nazareth was indeed a human being and a person who lived and he did these wonderful miracles and there's no arguing that he did. And yet still, people don't believe. Shouldn't the case be closed? Shouldn't the trial be over and the verdict rendered that Jesus is Lord, that he is the King of kings and he is the Lord of lords. He is the Son of God in eternity before time and eternity after time and everything in between. If there is such a thing, Jesus is Lord. The case is closed. There is evidence aplenty for people to see. But they still didn't believe. It's incredible. It's amazing that they didn't believe him, isn't it? Wouldn't it be incredible to see these signs and have no way of of claiming that it's just a trick and they know he did what he said he did and yet they didn't believe? And I have to ask myself the question and I ask you the same. What signs are you not believing in your own life? What miracle of God Are you dismissing through unbelief? You have life. You have life because God gave it to you. And and sure, there might be people today who call themselves scientists who really are preachers of humanism, who will tell you that you're just an accident of nature. Sure, you can hide behind all of that silliness that's in the world today and has always been in the world in one way or another. But somewhere in your heart, I believe you know that there's something more to it and that those claims simply can't be true. But you ignore that part of your heart and your mind because of unbelief. You set it aside. You see the world and the universe around you and Deep within, you know that everything that exists is a testimony to the one who created it. As we read in Psalm chapter 19, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. You experience this. So do I. You experience what it is to be human. You laugh, you cry. You feel pain, you feel pleasure, you run, you work, you rest, you hate, you love, you think, you feel all of these things and you know, you know that this complex thing called being a human being is explainable for no other reason than the fact there is a God who gave you life. And that as silly and as simple as the world wants you to believe that you're nothing but a bunch of chemicals that are alive in some kind of sentient way and one day you're going to go to the grave and that's it, I implore you, I cry out to the heart that is inside of you, you know that's not true. You know it's not. It can't be. 
Surely this human being, this heart of mine, these emotions, these thoughts, these feelings, these things that make me a human being are more than just the combination of of molecules and atoms that, that come together and they're more than just neurons that strike in this gray matter of my brain. There must be more to it than that and I believe you know it is and that, my friend, is a miracle. Life itself. That I can even communicate and speak and have thoughts that are that come from the reality of what life really is and and yet people don't believe. It's incredible. It's absolutely astonishing that man can live in an unbelief of God. The scriptures call that person a fool. And it is such foolishness. Deep in our minds and our hearts, there is a witness to the reality that there is something far greater than what we think and feel alone. But this thing called being a human being, this life that we have, it, it drew the psalmist to say this in Psalm 139, verse 14. And I encourage you to stop and consider this truth. The psalmist says to God, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And aren't, isn't that so true of people? Human beings, we have relationships with them, just unique personalities and unique strengths and unique weaknesses and, and love that we feel for one another. And we think about it and we stop for a minute and we say with the psalmist, God, I praise you. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. I've often thought, about those who study the brain. And I know I've said this before as well, but it is just, it's intriguing to me to think about the fact that the brain is trying to understand itself. Using the very thing, and there's more to life than all of that. So what signs in your life are you refusing to believe are from God and that they're just somehow some kind of accident, some kind of coincidence? It's silly. It's incredible. miracles in your life are you just putting under the heading of commonplace? I encourage you to study the human body. The eye alone will convince you of the fearful, wonderful way that you've been created. But what are you heading? What are you putting under that? It's just commonplace and normal. Let me tell you this, just because there are 7 billion people on the planet today does not mean that there aren't 7 billion miracles walking on the earth. Every one of them created in the image and the likeness of God to come to know him, but so many refuse to believe. Miracle and sign after miracle and sign, and it happened in Jesus' day. And so we see then as, as compelling as miracles and signs can be, we see they're not enough to compel belief, are they? I, I read this in the pulpit commentary and I, I thought it said it well and very succinctly. Signs in heaven, earth and sea, startling miracles on human nature and on dead men did not compel belief. 
you might say something like this. Had I been there when Jesus fed the 5,000, I would have believed. You you might be saying to yourself, or maybe you've said it to others, had I been on that hillside, that day when Jesus prayed over those five loaves and two fish and tens of thousands of people walked away with food, had I been there and seen Lazarus walk out of the tomb, had I been there and saw leprosy depart and leave the skin of those lepers, I would have believed. These people were absolutely insane. If I'd have seen it, I'd have believed it. But very clearly, the signs weren't enough. Because John records, they still didn't believe. This is the power of unbelief. To deny what is so blatant and so obvious and right in front of us. This is the power of unbelief. And very clearly, the majority of the onlookers of Jesus' life did not believe. And let me ask you, this question, why do you think you would be any different? But we think that. Had I been there, had I seen what he did, then I'd believe in Jesus. You might also say, if Jesus would just perform some miracle in my life, I would believe him. If he just get me that job that I think that I need, if he just make it so I can marry that person that I think I should marry, I would believe him. If Jesus would just cure my cancer or cure my body and cure, heal my disease, I would believe. If he would prevent my friend from dying, I would believe. If Jesus would bless my life with the things that I want him to bless me with, I would believe him. And I, I'd say to you, no, you wouldn't. Not with the sign alone. I say to you, the record is clear. Such signs are never enough on their own to compel belief. In fact, there is in the heart of man a resistance to believe in Christ and signs alone will never overcome it. I want to give you another example from Scripture. In Luke chapter 16, verses 24 through 31, we read of the rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man has died, and we know Lazarus, the beggar, at his doorstep, and we know this story, most of us, and they both died, and Lazarus goes to heaven, he's with God, he's in the bosom of Abraham, and the rich man opens his eyes in eternal destruction in hell, and there is this account that Jesus himself gives, and the rich man says, and he calls out, To him, in the 24th verse, the rich man calls out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And beside all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And so listen to what the rich man then asks. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him, that is Lazarus, to my father's house. For I have five brothers. 
so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. So very quickly, let us lay aside any idea that hell will be a wonderful place as long as the company that we want to keep will be there. This man said, send someone to my brothers. They should not. I do not want them to come here. But Abraham said, are you looking for a sign? Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And the rich man said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But Abraham said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Words of the rich man betray his misunderstanding of what God requires of men and women and children, which is belief. Let me ask you this question. Had Lazarus risen from the dead, had God uh, uh, allowed this rich man's request, sent Lazarus back from the dead, and Lazarus goes and knocks on their door, and those five brothers look and they see the dead man that they know has died and that has been buried. Let me ask you this question. What is there to believe? Nothing. They're seeing. And seeing is not the same thing as believing. Had Lazarus been brought back from the dead and he stood before those men, there'd have been nothing left for them to believe. They would have simply said, it is true. And without belief, we read in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, it's impossible to please God. This rejection, this unbelief, as it begins, as I'm speaking to you today about unbelief, It's this, first of all, this willful unbelief, this choice that's made to not believe in the face of all kinds of evidence to the contrary. And it's amazing to me how successful the enemy has been at making Christians portrayed as the people who don't think and reason and rationally examine the world around them, that there's some silly group of people who don't delve into the deep things of life and they're just simpletons and afraid of the truth when the exact opposite is the case. This rejection of God comes down to willful unbelief in what he said. Rejecting God's not merely committing various sins, cursing, lying, adultery, murder, stealing. These are all sins, of course. Do you know what the ultimate rejection of God is? Unbelief. Unbelief. I don't believe you. That ought to take something out of your lungs to even say such a thing. To stand before God and say to him, I don't believe you. Some people in the world, they struggle wondering what God wants from them and they try to live good lives. They try to treat other people well. But if this is all they do, there's always going to be something more they sense is required of them. So, What is it? It's belief. I believe you. 
I am as Job. In the midst of the trouble that I am experiencing in life, I stand there and I say, I know my Redeemer lives. And I'm going to see him in the last day. It's belief. And yes, that's why these signs alone will never be enough. The answer of what God wants from you is simple. He wants you to believe him. Believe in him in such a way as to see clearly that life itself is about knowing God and walking with him and obeying him and telling others about him. Now this willful unbelief, this choice of a man or a woman or a child to reject and to disbelieve, there's a real Scary, sobering reality to that that we need to consider from this passage of Scripture. In verses 38 through 40, it says, So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The Lord, or Lord, who has believed what we have heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he, speaking of God, has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. These three verses should send a cold chill down the spine of anyone who understands what we just read. It just said God will harden the heart and blind the eyes to where they cannot believe. They cannot see. Just taken at their face value, the words tell us that God himself, God himself will blind the eyes and harden the heart so that belief becomes impossible. It's tricky areas, tricky water here. Who's to blame then? As we read this passage of Scripture with John quoting Isaiah in the Old Testament and specifically chapter 6, who's to blame? John quoting him, quoting Isaiah in the passage that seems to indicate that God is to blame for man's rejection and unbelief. But a closer look is necessary for us to see what's really here. Is God to blame? He just said he's going to harden the heart and blind the eyes. But look at verse 38. Verse 38 asks what is essentially a rhetorical question. The word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, and this is the question. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The implied answer is few, if any, no one, most have not heard. That is clearly the implication of the question. And then, so at first, with verse 38, the question, who's believed us? The implication, none, few. They most have denied, most have unbelieved, have not believed. And then verse 39, that first word is incredibly important to understand this passage of Scripture. Therefore, they could not believe. Therefore, they could not believe. Therefore, what? Because they had already refused to believe, there came a point in time when belief was no longer possible. The order is simple, and it leads us to the statement that because they would not believe, 
when they had the opportunity to do so, a time came later when they could not believe. This is always the pattern of Scripture. People want to point their finger at God and blame Him in passages like this, but this is always the order. First, man rejects God. And then, God rejects man. That's what's going to happen. That's what I'm here to tell you today. It's what the Bible says. Your rejection of God now is going to end up in His rejection of you later. He doesn't reject you first. He loved you first. He doesn't turn you away first. He drew you first. He doesn't want to cast you away. He wants you to draw himself you to Him. And He wants you to believe Him. And trust Him. And follow Him. And obey Him. And love Him. But if you reject Him, don't misunderstand the Word of God. He's going to reject you. And it won't be possible to believe. Now I'm not going to get into the when does this happen? Does it happen in life before death? I don't believe that personally. I think you're drawing breath in this life. God's calling you to Himself. It's just what I believe. But there's going to come a point in time when you leave this life at least where you're going to want to believe. But you can't. You can't. It becomes impossible. Pharaoh is such another classic example. Six times Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then six times God hardened it. But that was the order. Paul talks in Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 21. Although they knew God, he's speaking of unbelievers. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, because they had already done this, because men had already rejected him, therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Because of what they did in rejecting him, God turns and rejects them. God never hardens a heart that has not first hardened itself. But be very clear with the word of God. Because they have rejected me, I have rejected them. I want to read this, a couple of things that others have written about this. Again, I hope it's of help. New American commentary, commentary says this, human, human responsibility for sin and unbelief is never excused in the Bible. That God is clearly said in Isaiah and here in John to have had a hand in human affairs and actions in terms of blinding eyes and petrifying hearts in order that Israel would not come to healing is indisputable. But that original pronouncement was also said in the context of Israel's consistent disobedience. The action of God, therefore, did not excuse Israel. 
R.H. Linsky says the answer to the problem, and the problem he's speaking of is this one we're engaged in, is God responsible, or am I? If he hardened my heart and blinded my eyes, how can I be held responsible? And the answer, the answer to the problem, Linsky says, is that in Isaiah's and in John's words, we have not the antecedent, but the subsequent will of God. Not the will that comes first, but the will that comes after human action. This is not a blinding and a hardening decreed in advance by an absolute will forcing damnation upon men, but a judicial and punitive decree upon those whose obduracy God infallibly foresees. They who willfully and wickedly turn the gospel, which on God's part is meant for them as a savor of life unto life, into a savor of death unto death shall indeed go to their doom. The announcement of their fate in advance by prophecy is due to the foreknowledge of God, which declares that they who will not believe and be saved shall not believe and find salvation. The order is critical to understand what's going on here. And it's a warning call to any who reject God, maybe even now rejecting Him. I tell you, there will come a a time when that table will be turned. And though you might want to believe, Revelation talks about these people and crying out for the mountains to fall on them, to hide them from the wrath of the one seated on the throne. Remember too, that just in the immediate verses prior to this, Jesus had called out to the people to believe in the light while you have the light. That call was not a trick. Jesus was not playing some terrible trick on you. This was not a cruel trick of God who had already determined to blind eyes and harden hearts against the very thing that the Son had just called them to do. It was a sincere call to every man, woman, and child in the entire world. Come to the light that you might become sons of light. But they rejected it. And then God rejected them. And we must understand that. If we reject him today, and we continue to reject him day after day after day, will come a point in time when God rejects you. But you can change this. That's the beauty of the day. You can change this Now, you can come to him if he's drawing you. If he is drawing you, that means he's not rejected you. If he's rejected you, he would not be pulling on your heart. He would not be crying out to you to come to him. If he is bringing to your attention your sin and your need of a savior, it's because he wants you to show you he's already made a savior available to you. Yes, the reality, the cold chill down the spine that God one day is going to reject all those who rejected him. But today is not that day I pray for you. I pray today is the day you come to him and you believe him finally and fully and with unreserved, unapologetic love and devotion to Christ. You stand and say, I believe God. 
Because this end that we've just been warning you about doesn't have to be the case for you. And the very fact that he's dealing with your heart is testimony to that. God doesn't do anything without a purpose and he's not vindictive. If he's drawing you, it's because he wants to save you. If he's convicting you, it's because you need to see your need of him. Finally, in verses 42 and 43, we see what I can only label believing unbelief. And if verses 38 through 40 should send a cold chill down our spine, I think verses 42 and 43 should just make us weep. Just make us weep when we understand what they're saying. Weep at the trade that these leaders among the Jews made. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. There was a measure of belief in these men. Weighing the proof in the signs, taking the measure of the man, Jesus, there was some modicum, some form, some type of belief. Yet I, I don't see it as saving belief. And there's differing opinions. There's differ, disagreement among different theologians on this point. But it is my assessment that these spoken of in verses 42 and 43 weren't saved people. It says so clearly that they loved the glory of man more than the glory of God. Salvation is coming to God through Christ and the abandonment of our hope in the riches of this world or the other men of this world. It seems clear to me here that this is not the kind of belief these leaders had. They made a trade and it was a terrible, terrible trade. They traded the eternal for the temporary. And if this is you, I want you to listen to what you're doing They traded the eternal acceptance of God for the temporary acceptance of man. The eternal approval of God was traded for the temporary approval of men. The eternal glory of God was traded for the temporary glory of man. Eternal riches in heaven were traded for temporary riches in the world. Eternal peace with God was traded for temporary peace with man. Many things could be said of these trades, but what comes quickly to mind is this. What a terrible, terrible, awful trade and decision this was. God gave them life. What a terrible waste of that life. Gave them life. He gave his son so that they might come to know God and become sons of light and live with him in heaven forever. But though there were many signs and many opportunities, they chose the world and men instead of God in heaven. They believed. But it was unbelieving. Belief. They knew there was something about this man, Jesus. 
They believed there was something very special about him. They, they perhaps even believed that he is likely the Messiah, but they did not believe to the saving of their souls through the willing repentance for sin and faith in Christ alone is the way to heaven. It doesn't appear to me anyway that they did as a whole. And we're dealing with them as a whole. There certainly were likely others. And we think of Joseph of Arimathea. We think of Nicodemus. And certainly there were some among them that would come to Christ and maybe already had. But this, this balance of the people, this balance of the leaders that John is talking about, he just simply comes out and says, they loved man more than God. And that does not describe salvation to me. They did not abandon their hope and their own righteousness and continued to surround themselves with people who sounded and thought just like them and gave them encouragement to continue on their way to reject the very Son of God. And in a matter of a few short days, the the people among the leaders crying out, crucify him, and ultimately denying and rejecting him. I will never, I will never say that raising children as in a Christian home, as a disadvantage. It is not. So do not misunderstand what I'm getting ready to say. There is a deadly, deadly self-righteousness that can invade the Christian home if it's not understood that what God calls for is belief and not behavior. You can behave like a Christian all your life and never believe him. There's belief in God, but a rejection of God. There's a belief in scripture, but a rejection of what the scriptures say about the heart of man and about God and about Christ and about the world. I can think of fewer worse things to have placed on my tombstone than the words of verse 43. Can you imagine that placarded on your tombstone as you leave this life? He loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. What a death sentence that would be. I pray this is not the legacy that I leave in the world. I pray it's not the legacy you leave in the world. He or she loved the praise and the acceptance and the love and the glory of man more than that of God. But instead, the inscription on our tombstone would read, and upon mine, and it's such a bold thing to say, I almost hesitate to say that it is true. So bold the words are, but I pray that it's what I'm striving for, that he loved the glory that comes from God more than the glory that comes from man. That he abandoned his hope in this world and he is now gone to his eternal hope in heaven because he believed God. And the unbelief of the willful rejection of God was overcome one day when God saved his soul on that mountain or that hillside in southwest Missouri. And from that day forward, he stumbled and he faltered and he was not perfect and he was not the man he wanted to be. But he loved God and he loved God's glory more than the glory of men. And I want others' tombstones to say that as well so that your children and my children and our friends and our neighbors can say when we leave this life, they loved God and they're with Him now. That it might stir some belief and some wrestling in the heart of those around us. What a wonderful, glorious thing that would be if that would 
to be accurately and rightly inscribed on our tombstone. He loved his God more than he loved himself. In conclusion today, is there willful unbelief in your heart despite the many signs of God all around you and within you? Are you even now at risk of crossing over the line from time to eternity, having rejected God and then having Him reject you? Is there belief in God, but an accompanying unbelief of what He has said? Turn from your unbelief and place your trust, your faith, your full belief, full belief in Christ. Trust what he said about you and about your sin and the just condemnation for that sin in hell forever. Trust him when he shows you the reality that he sent his son to die for you in your place on the cross at Calvary. Repent of your sin and ask God to forgive you through Christ's sacrifice Throw your entire hope for time and eternity on Christ. Trust his work on the cross and not your work and the things you think you have done or maybe will do in the future. Turn from your sin and experience the healing of Christ. And when he does heal you, tell us about it. So that we can rejoice with you. So that we can look one another in the eye. And bow together on our knees and look unto the God who is now our Savior together. And unbelief has been banished from the heart and banished from the life. And there is clarity of purpose and hope in tomorrow and an eternity ahead. Tell the world about that. As the psalmist said, let the, the redeemed say so. Remove the unbelief when he does that for you. Tell us about it. And when peace with God is found, share it with those around you. There's a world of people out there that are hungry for peace with God. Going from one thing to the next, the latest fad, the latest popular person in Hollywood, the latest fad diet exercise plan, career growth strategies, family growth, I, I, whatever, that there's just one thing after another that people are seeking to throw into that vacuum that's in their heart. And everything they throw in there that isn't God just gets totally overcome and overwhelmed with the rest of life and it becomes nothing. But God can fill that place if you'd believe him. So believe him. You've heard it countless times. I had too. Before I was saved, I'd heard it countless times. But the day that I came to know him, and I came to that place of belief, of a certainty that passes all understanding, it's the most certain thing that I have in my life, is that I am a child of God. I pray that for you. I long to see it. I anticipate it. But know the realities of what it means to reject him. Let's have a song.